Hello and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. My name is Lukas Dohmann and today on the Case Podcast we will talk about microservices. My guest is Eberhard Wolf. Eberhard is a colleague of mine working as a fellow at InnoQ. With over 15 years of experience as an architect and consultant, he's written multiple books. So welcome to the show, Eberhard. Thanks for having me. You wrote multiple books about microservices, right? Yes, uh, so um, I wrote a book about microservices originally in German. Um, it, has, it has been translated to English and um, Korean. And also I wrote a rather short book that you can actually get for free uh, called The Microservices Primer that gives a very short introduction about what microservices are and why you might want to use them. And the primer is in English as well? Yeah, so there is an English and uh, a German version for that. And Great. I think we will put the links to those in, in the show notes. Yeah, we will do that. So let's start with a short definition of microservices. What uh, is, in your opinion, the definition of microservices? Yeah, I think that's already a very good question because um, if you look at it, um, everybody has a different concept about what a microservice actually is. And um, I try to come up with a definition that is rather generic so that basically says everything that we we call microservice actually fits the definition and the definition that i came up with is that a microservice is an individually deployable module um, and the reason why i like the definition is because first of all uh, it basically says that microservices are just modules and that's a concept that we are very used to um, and so and it also makes clear that um You can either use microservices or different types of modularization like you know java packages or uh, c++ namespaces or these kinds of modules that we all use to in, in programming languages and it also means that we can um, apply the ideas about or what what good modules are also for microservices so low cohesion um, sorry high cohesion and low coupling and these kinds of things And the really new stuff is that they are individually deployable. So if you have a change to a module, you don't need to deploy all of your modules. You just deploy a single module. So in an e-commerce application, if there is a change to the order process, you just deploy the microservice that, that is responsible to the order process. And the rest of the system just stays as it is. As it is. So that's the way that I think about microservices and how I would define that term. So for you, the core ideas are about deployment uh, for microservices, right? Yes, so that's what it sets them apart from other types of modularization. However, it's still modularization. So it's still about how do you split a system apart into specific parts. Okay. Um, and what do you think enabled uh, all those ideas? Because there are a lot of different ideas about how ex to exactly do microservices, but they are all not that old, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, so, I mean, if you look at it, uh, the idea of modularization is very old, but uh, the idea to have individually deployable modules is actually more recent. And I would argue that uh, one of the reasons why we are doing that nowadays is because The, the cost for deployment has come down a lot. And that is because we have virtualization. That is because we have containers. So it's uh, much easier to have a system to deploy software on. Nobody needs to go into a data center anymore and uh, put another system into the rack. Uh, it is something that you just do in, in software. And also the deployment has been automated 
uh, due to uh, the continuous delivery movement. And I would argue, and that's also sort of how how I uh, approach the subject. So um, I wrote a book about continuous delivery. I thought that continuous delivery was really a huge step forward. And then I realized that uh, continuous delivery is also something that would influence the architecture. And that is why I um, became interested in, in microservices. So I think there's a huge synergy between those two things. So, you, so you're saying that continuous delivery enabled uh, microservices or um, made it a consequence of continuous delivery? Yes, yeah, so in a way it enabled it, but it's also that uh, if you want to do microservices, you need to have uh, automated deployment in place. Uh, so, but it all microservices also support continuous delivery. So, if you look at it, I would argue if you you have a very large system that needs to be deployed as a whole, a deployment monolith, um, it will be hard to truly do continuous delivery because it will be very hard to even deploy it automatically. And also the feedback, the fast feedback that you aim for in continuous delivery will be rather slow because the unit is so large that you're deploying. So it takes a long time to deploy it, it takes a long time to test it, and so on and so on. So I would argue on the one hand, you need to have that automation in place that continuous delivery provides. But at the same time, if you want to do continuous delivery, you should think about Uh, what you do with your architecture and whether your architecture should or how your architecture will support continuous delivery. And I think microservices are a good answer to that uh, topic or to that challenge. Okay, so what what other advantages do you see in this architecture? Yeah, that's a very good question. So if you look at it, um, a lot of people claim that uh, the the main problem that microservices solve is that large systems are rather hard to develop with large teams. Uh, so the usual story about microservices is in fact that people had a deployment monolith and uh, they were throwing more developers um, on the deployment monolith to get more stuff done and they realized that uh, the deployment monolith is just too large and it's too hard to really do a lot with it. So what they did is they split it apart and uh, built microservices instead. Um, and I think that's a very valid point, and I would argue that it allows us to tackle problems that were really hard to tackle before. I mean, doing uh, large projects has been a very hard, a, a very tough challenge in the past. And in a way, microservices solve that problem because they split apart the system so much that you're rather doing a lot of small projects instead of one large project. So if you have All the decisions that you're making are usually limited to your microservice. So if, if you have a new feature, it will be implemented in one microservice and even technical decisions can be made within just one microservice. So there is a lot of independence and that allows the teams to work independently and that solves that problem. Having said that, um, a lot of customers uh, that, that I work with Actually, they have much smaller teams. So they have one or two scrum teams. And obviously, in such environments, you don't really have the, the kind of challenges that you have if you have like 100 people working on, on a deployment monolith. I would still argue that there are a lot of advantages that you can gain in such scenarios. Um, so we already spoke about continuous delivery. So that's obviously an advantage that you can get. There is a very interesting thing 
So one thing that we are also struggling with as an industry is how do we actually make sure that our system stays maintainable in the long run? And the usual approach is uh, to come up with a very great architecture and to make sure that that architecture will tackle the problem and solve it once and for all. And the problem that I have is usually when I get to a customer, when I go to a customer, um, they don't have that. Even though they tried, they don't have a clear architecture and usually they have rather a mess. So I would argue the idea to, to make a system maintainable in the long run by uh, by building a very good architecture. It is something that a lot of people tried and most of them failed. And microservices have a different approach because what microservices basically say, well, if we mess up one microservice, we can just replace it. So I think that's a nice different approach. It doesn't say we are going to build that software and it's going to last forever, but rather we say if there's a problem with one piece of that software, we are going to replace it. And I think that's a nice alternative approach. The architecture between the microservices is very stable. Uh, so um, because there are the interfaces between the microservices, and that means that uh, if you violate the architecture, if you build in a new dependency that shouldn't be there between microservices, you will notice that because you need to go through the interface of the microservice. While in a deployment monolith, usually these dependencies between modules are just randomly introduced by some developer and maybe that developer doesn't really even notice how he or she is changing the architecture of the system and how uh, new, um, new dependencies uh, are introduced. And that is something that in the microservices system, uh, you will notice that for sure. So um, you're build, basically building a stronger walls between the modules, right? It's not that simple to get over those walls um, because it's very visible. Exactly. Uh, the term that I'm I'm using for that sometimes is architecture firewalls, sort of like mm -hmm. uh, splitting the system and making sure that uh, at least that uh, that kind of decomposition stays stable in the long run. Mm -hmm. Um. Then there are some techni technical advantages. So, for example, uh, you can scale each indivi uh, microservice individually. Uh, you can have um, you can limit or contain a security breach to just one microservice because there might be you know firewalls between them and they they run different systems. So, I would argue that there are actually quite a few different. Um, Different advantages on very different levels, technical levels, organizational levels, uh, architectural levels. And that is also why I would, I think that uh, a very important point is to get to understand what type of goals you're trying to achieve by using microservices. Because depending on what your goals are, you might end up with a very different um, architecture and a different way uh, of, of building your system. So, I mean, if you have a large system and it's about uh, scaling your your process and scaling your development in terms of, of developers working on it, it's probably going to be different what you're doing from a scenario where you're aiming for independent um, scalability, for example. Mm -hmm. But uh, do you also see disadvantages in this uh, architecture? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I strongly believe that 
uh, every type of architecture that you're using is actually a trade-off. And for that reason, there are clearly disadvantages in microservices. I would argue that the number one disadvantage is that uh, it the system becomes more complex to deploy and to operate because basically what I'm saying is each module becomes an individually deployable thing that is running somewhere. So it might be a Docker container, for example. And that means that there is just so much more stuff running there. So if you have a system that contains of 50 modules, there are 15 times the number of things that you need to run in production. Mm -hmm. And I think... That is clearly one of, of the disadvantages. And there are some um, other problems. So it is somewhat harder to talk about the system as a whole. So if you want to do a refactoring where you you want to do where you really want to change the whole system, the, the complete architecture, it's gonna be harder. Um I have to admit that I think that is not such a big problem because if you want to do that kind of refactoring it's probably going to be hard anyway and there is a major problem probably um, and I I think um, it's going to cost a lot of effort anyway so uh, these kinds of refactoring will will be hard anyway it is harder with microservices but that's probably something that that is uh, still fine however having said that in a way it means that if you get the architecture wrong, if you get the split into modules wrong, it's probably going to be, be worse if you do microservices because if you have a deployment monolith, you can still change all the modules and deploy them at once. While with microservices, you would need to do multiple deployments and you need to coordinate those deployments and it's going to be harder. So if you if you have a mess, <coughs> if you have a messed up um, architecture, it's probably going to be worse if you implement that architecture using microservices. So I think that's that's probably one of the main problems that you have. And also, you have a distributed system now, right? Yes, you do. Um, however, um, I would actually argue that the impact of that is rather limited. So what, what I keep saying is that a request that comes in should ideally be handled by just one microservice. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you do have a distributed system because there are microservices, So, and each request might be handled by a different microservice. But it should, it should not be the common case that a request will be handled by multiple systems uh, and that there are these kinds of dependencies. And in a way, what I'm just saying is that microservices are modules, so they should have low coupling, so they shouldn't really talk that much to one another. And I'm just rephrasing that. I'm just saying that uh, they are a distributed system, and uh, they, but they still don't talk so much to one another because there's low coupling. So I think it's it sort of makes sense from that perspective too. Okay, I think we will talk a little bit about uh, communication later, but first right. let's go into preconditions. What what do you think a, a company has to fulfill before they can even start a microservice architecture, or can anybody just start with the microservice archi architecture? 
I would argue that uh, it's a global trade-off between making development probably easier and um, making operations somewhat harder. Um, and for that reason, you need to have some kind of operations environment that actually supports that. I don't think that means... So in a way, that means um, you would have to have some uh, DevOps culture. In So you need to have some collaboration between development and operations. Because if you just um, if you just um, do it without a DevOps culture, operations will have a hard time keeping up with all the microservices, making sure that all of them work and actually available. So development needs to support them. At the same time, operations needs to realize that um, they are up to a challenge, but it's worthwhile because it makes life easier for the for the dev department. Uh, my experience is actually that you don't need DevOps teams in the sense that one team is responsible for building the service and running it. So the you know you build it, you run it uh, approach. Mm. That's not strictly needed. It is rather uh, that the operations department needs to support the dev department and vice versa. So there needs to be some collaboration. It's not that you need to have these um, DevOps teams that are fully responsible for the, the, the services. That's just my experience. So in practice, uh, it is still fine to have uh, teams, separated teams between development and operations. That's mm -hmm. the main point I would argue that uh, you need to, to support. Okay. Um so I heard that there are a lot of different styles of microservices. You said that there are there is no definition of microservices, but there are a few out there. Can you mention some of them and maybe the, the most important ones? Yeah, so I would argue that the most radical approach that I know concerning microservices is what Fred George um, is implements. Uh, there is an, an interview with that I did with him on, on the SE Radio podcast where we go into a lot more detail. Um, and basically, he says that a microservice is something that is like 100 or maybe 200 lines of code and that can be pretty much replaced instantly. So that's, a, that's an approach where you have really small-grained microservices um, and communication between them is, is asynchronous. I have to admit that I'm not sure whether, or let me put it that way, it is not an approach that I would propose if I was running a project because, uh, frankly, I'm not sure how you can actually make that happen because it is a lot of very small things that are running and that means it's going to be very complex to actually support that. Mm. However, um, Fred has done that in, in, in a lot of different projects, so I think that Uh, it is something that definitely works in practice. So that's the most radical approach. It is something that you would probably nowadays um, would be able to do using serverless uh, systems where you can have um, functions of 100 lines of code or so, just type the code in the browser and run it on the Amazon cloud and off you go. So that allows you to do more fine-grained services. Um, the approach that a lot of people seem to be doing is what um, Netflix and a lot of other uh, companies are doing where you have microservices that are rather coarse-grained. So a team, a scrum team would handle one or maybe 
a few microservices, but not uh, a lot of them. So it's it's more coarse grain in that sense. And the approach that I see working in a lot of customers, or that has actually quite some some good ideas, is uh, the self-contained systems approach that has a similar level of granularity like the Netflix approach. But it's different because uh, self-contained systems are supposed to have to be web applications. So they would include a UI and would therefore have an architecture where all the logic, all the data, and uh, all the uh, also all the UI is in one service. And the, the big advantage uh, is that if a customer requests a change to the system, it's very likely that it's going to be contained in one self-contained system, even if the customer wants to have a change to the UI and the logic and the persistence. It's going to be in one self-contained system, quite likely. So that's an advantage. And the other advantage is if you do it that way, there is not too much communication between self-contained systems if a request comes in. So let's imagine that you have you know, a system that is responsible for the checkout in an e-commerce system and a system that is responsible for the invoicing, all the requests concerning checkout, the payment, and, uh, and so on and so on will be handled by one self-contained system. And there is just one communication where the order is hand handed over from the checkout to the invoicing, and that's it. So there's a lot of requests that are just handled by one self-contained system, and there is hardly a lot of communication between them. And that, again, fulfills the goal of uh, the typical request being handled by just one um, self-contained system or microservice for that matter. Um, I think we have to mention Conway's Law at this point and maybe briefly describe what this is about because I think uh, we're talking <laughs> around it a little bit, right? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. So, uh, you know, there there is no talk about uh, microservices that is complete without mentioning Conway's Law. So that's a classic. Um, it's from, I believe, 68. And it basically claims that the architecture of a system is limited by the organizational structures. And the way that you can think about it is that um, if I'm building a component and someone else is building uh, a component, we would have an interface between them. So if there is an architecture, we will probably spread the parts of the architecture, the components, to the different people, the different teams. So that is how the architecture influences the organization. And it's also the other way around. So if um, I'm part of a team, I will probably build something and someone else will build a different component. And then we will limit, we will organize our work in that way. And then we will have uh, an interface where we need to talk uh, because of you know, const uh, because of requirements that we, we might want to implement jointly. So communication structures will lead to something in the uh, architecture. And again, if you have something in the architecture, it will lead to people talking to one another. And the, the, the interesting thing that microservices brought to the table concerning Conway's law is, back before microservices, Conway's law was... Um, thought of as a limitation 
So here's my organization. Let's assume that I built a team. That build that team is uh, is the UI team, and there is another team that is responsible for the database. And I do that because there there are experts in these um, areas. So there are experts concerning databases and experts concerning UI. If I do it this way, which makes sense from an organizational standpoint, it means that I influence the architecture and the architecture will have those technical artifacts. So there is a limitation concerning the architecture that you can actually build. And the new thing that microservices brought to the table is that um, the microservices people said, well, we are we have the ideal architecture, which is more like independent system. So we have some system that has a business functionality, uh, such as the checkout. And we assign a team to that uh, system. And that way we enforce the architecture using organizational measures. Um, that is also what the Agile community uh, mentions. So the Agile community also talks about cross-functional teams. So that's actually what, what we are doing there. We need to have teams that have UI experts, log uh, experts for, for domain logic and also experts for, for databases. So we need to have cross-functional teams. There is one thing that is also sort of a synergy there. Uh, so I used to be part of a team like 15 years ago or so where we actually had an order team. They were responsible for order. But we built a deployment monolith. So how what's what's the what's the difference to to nowadays? Nowadays it's not just that you have the functionality split apart. So, you know, a uh, some new feature will either be handled by the order team or by the checkout team or by some other team. It's also that technical decisions can be made by these teams because they would just influence one of the microservices and therefore there is more independence. So there is a synergy there because microservices allow you to be more uh, independent concerning technology. It is also easier to do that organizational thing. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Um, what, where do you see uh, how to implement microservices? Do you think that it is a greenfield approach or a brownfield approach, or can it be both? That's a very good point, and I think it's it's uh, valuable to, to talk about it because I think microservices are originally a brownfield approach. So usually the usual story that that you see in conferences and also that I see in, in customers is so we have a deployment monolith we hit the wall concerning the speed that we can do changes so now we are splitting it apart into microservices and I think that's actually great because you know migrating away from legacy applications is one of the huge challenges that we have as an industry so microservices are another tool to do that and I think it's also important because it's rather unsexy. So nowadays people think microservices are fancy and cool and so on, and of course they are, but they also solve these old, unfancy, unsexy problems like legacy migration. So I think that's that's good uh, an important point to, uh, to notice. It seems to me that, um, let's say in the last year or so, people are um, also building greenfield microservices systems. So that's, I would say, something that at least I see as a rather recent thing. And of course you can do that, but um, 
you know, at one point, uh, someone uh, stepped up to me and said, well, you know, microservices, it's all very cool, but you can only truly do that in, in a greenfield environment. And I was like, wow, that's a very, that's a very strange um, comment because to me, it is originally about brownfield. And I think it's a very valuable tool in that regard because you can, you can, you know, you can build a new system. You're not tied to the old technology and you can gain advantages pretty much pretty soon without modifying a lot of the code in the legacy system. So I think it's a very mm -hmm. valuable tool in that scenario. Okay. Um, so um, one question is, uh, how do you, we handle all this complexity in microservices? That's a good point. I mean, on the one hand, microservices are, of course, complex. So we already spoke about how deployment and operations become much more complex. I would argue that microservices are actually a simple solution. I mean, people don't shouldn't be using an architecture because it's complex, and I actually believe they don't do that. They do it because it's the simplest solution around. So I, th if you look at it, there are a lot of advantages like these really decoupled systems uh, from a technology perspective and also from, from a functional perspective and um, easier scalability and so on and so on. So there, there's a lot of stuff to be gained. However, of course, there are some disadvantages primarily in the, in the, uh, in the space of operations. And that's the trade-off. And I would argue if that trade-off is positive, so if you gain more than you lose, you should do microservices. And then chances are that microservices are a simple or probably even the simplest solution. And I think that is, I mean, that's how, how the whole uh, concept even um, was was created because people were, build, were trying to build systems that they could not possibly build without using microservices because otherwise they would be too complex. And I think that's a very important point to note. It is not that microservices are complex. It's a trade-off. You should only do it if it's actually a simple solution, not a complex solution. I would never ch voluntarily choose a complex architecture because, well, that will backfire on me. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. So you said in the beginning that each microservice should be able to handle a request all by itself. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so um, that's just another way of saying that the modules, the microservices have low coupling and high cohesion. So each microservice will hardly talk to other microservices, basically means that they are lowly coupled to one another. Um, the, problem, the question is, how do you make sure that your systems are structured in that way? And uh, I think the best tool that we have to do that is uh, domain-driven design. So domain-driven design is a way of structuring software that has been introduced by Eric Evans in uh, more than 10 years ago. And he wrote that, that book about domain-driven design. And among other things, he basically said that if I have a domain model, it's actually limited to one bounded context. So it's only valid in that one bounded context. And in a way, that's trivial. So if I have a system that in the e-commerce area, I have um, my domain model in that system, and of course, my customer will have a completely different domain model, as will my my suppliers and um, other systems that I interact with. However, even in such a system, like an e-commerce system, I can probably identify bounded context. So I could say, okay, if... 
I'm looking for to, to search for products. Well, I'm basically interested in what the product look, looks like. Maybe if pr definitely the price and a lot of other attributes like the size of a t-shirt and the color of a t-shirt and all these kinds of things. So that's for the product search. And then if I try to send out that product to someone, what I'm actually interested in is in which warehouse is it stored? Um, how much it does it weigh? How can I um, how can I actually ship it? So is it you know is it something that that needs to have some kind of special handling and so on and so on? So those are very different different um, things that you need to know about products. And of course there is a completely different domain model. So all of the other entities will be handled differently too, and the logic will be different and so on and so on. And what Domain of Design says is, let's have domain models for each of these bounded contexts. And that way we can get a much clearer and easier specialized domain model instead of overdoing it and making it too complex. And if you have a microservice that is actually one bounded context or implements a bounded context, they will be very independent so all of the logic, and because the domain model also includes the data, also all of the data will be in that one microservice and it will be handled there and that's it. So they hardly need to talk to one another. Of course, there is some communication because they are still part of a system, but it's not a lot of communication. And that is, I think, the key to make sure that microservices don't talk to one another. The other interesting thing is... Um, so, of course, systems need to talk to one another. And if you look at the more recent ideas in domain-driven design, actually, um, they say that those bounding contexts will probably talk to one another using events. So, you know, something like, okay, here is a new order, and please write an invoice for that or make sure that the deliver delivery goes out. So from, from the domain-driven design perspective, they propose that you should use events. And that is also that can be easily translated to asynchronous communication, which is advantageous for microservices because it allows more resilience and it solves the problems around, well, um, the distributed system. So distributed systems, of course, have the problem that systems might be down. But if you have asynchronous communication, it just means that the uh, system will eventually come up. And at that point, the message will be transferred and you're fine. And your system will probably deal with a higher latency, but you have to, have the, you have to be aware of that latency anyway because you're using asynchronous communication. And asynchronous communication by definition, includes a higher latency. So there is a nice synergy there again because basically domain-driven design doesn't gives us more than just bounded context. It also uh, sort of enforces uh, asynchronous communication between the bounded contexts, even though it's actually just events, but they can easily be implemented using asynchronous communication. And that's quite nice because it again solves problems that we have in these distributed systems where communication might fail, systems might be down, and you know you need to, to take care about uh, the resilience um, and how the system survives if some parts of the system fail.
Okay, but when each uh, request is handled by mainly one microservice, um, how do I get from one request to one microservice to another one? So how do they integrate uh, with each other? Yeah, so the, a very simple thing to do that, and that is why I think the, the idea around self-contained systems is so powerful. Um, you can just say, okay, well, I'm going to render an HTML page uh, in one microservice, and then there's a link to another HTML page. So, you know, if you want to go from uh, your search system to the, to the checkout, it's just going to be a link. So that would be one way of doing that. Or if you want to go to from the product search to a product detail page, it's just going to be a link, and so on and so on. Um, so that's one way of doing it. And by the way, there are also other nice things that you can do using front-end integration. So maybe there is um, there is a re there is a request that, or, or there is a feature plan that says I need to have all the information about a customer on one page. Well, how do you do that? You could store all the information about a customer in one microservice, but that would be a lot of replication of data and you know a lot of events that need to be handled. So an alternative might be to say, well, here is a page and it's going to be composed from content that is provided by the different boundary contexts that and it's all displayed on one page and you know if for example if you have the home page of your e-commerce system you might have one part that is filled by a system that is responsible for recommendation another one that is responsible for uh, giving you an idea about the what the state of your last um, uh, of your last orders are and so on and so on and so on so you know these these overviews can be handled on the UI level, and the nice thing about it again is that it's really low coupling because all these systems need to do is they need to be able to render that uh, page, and that's it. So of course there is some integration. So there is CSS, for example, that might be shared, and you know there is a look and feel that you need to agree on. Uh, but if you want to display completely different information, that's fine. You can just do it, uh, and it would just be a change to one self-contained system. So that's one way of doing it. Um, the asynchronous communication basically and the events basically mean that, in a way, there is a kind of a data replication, even though I'm not sure whether that's the correct term that I would use. So. I mean, what I'm what I'm trying what I'm trying to say is so there are events like, for example, here is a new order, and of course that will mean that there is information being stored in the invoicing system and there is information being stored or processed in the system that actually triggers the delivery, but it's going to be very different information. So it's not really a replication; it's more like there is an event and that leads to uh, systems. Um, storing data somewhere and doing that kind of stuff. And of course, there is still the possibility to do synchronous um, integration. Actually, if you look at the Netflix architecture, they rely a lot on synchronous communication. But in that case, you need to deal with uh, the problem that a system might be down and you need to build in some resilience in, in one way or another, so you need to deal with that. And that's why I would rather stay away from it. However, there are still cases where um, you would need to use synchronous communication, and that is when um, you want to make sure that there is a, a consistent view on the data. 
So I mean, the mm -hmm. only way that you can have or that you can um, get a high level of consistency is by having one system that has the data and all of the systems doing synchronous call to get the most up-to-date information about the data. Because that way you eliminate the uh, event mechanism, the asynchronous communication and uh, the the lag time that you might have between um, the different systems pro processing the, the events. But... Um, Apart from that, I would rather stay away from synchronous communication. So it is an option, um, but I would rather stay away from it. Um, and that is clearly a different approach from, from what Netflix, for example, is doing. Okay, but, but all of that means that the database between those services is not shared, right? They all have their own database. Yes, so at least they have um, a different database schema. And that's just a result of bound context. So if you have your own domain model, you have to somehow store the information in that model. And for that reason, you need to have your own schema that you can independently um, independently um, change and where you can you know, add, uh, add some data or remove data or whatever. So that's, I think, quite clear. Now the question is, does that mean that you have to have a different database for each system? So mm -hmm. you might argue that's a good idea because, well, Polyglot Persistence basically told us that there are different databases like graph databases, relational databases, and document stores, and they have different advantages and disadvantages. And for that reason, you probably want to have a different database in each system. And I would argue that's actually the case also in more traditional uh, architectures. So if I have some kind of search, it's usually done by some specialized uh, search system. So it's not that uncommon to actually have a specialized persistence solution for a specific boundary context or a specific microservice. Mm. Having said that, there is, there is a problem. So if a microservice uses a different programming language or let's say just a different java framework from an operations perspective that's not that much of a difference so you know whether i have a java process that runs that jar or that jar doesn't really make a lot of difference but for databases it's different because that those databases they actually store data and you know that data should not be lost so you need to have some kind of backup you need to have some kind of disaster recovery And that means sort of the cost or the effort to have a lot of databases running in your system is quite high. Mm. And for that reason, um, I think it's fine if you have one database or just a set of databases that you support or maybe just even one database instance that all of your microservices use. It's, again, a trade-off. So that would probably be cheaper, but it also has drawbacks. So, I mean, if that database fails, all of your systems fail. So that's... A good thing of course and the deployments are not as independent as they would have been if they have their own databases right right so you you do introduce some dependencies concerning deployments you do introduce dependencies concerning availability um, and you know i think that might be a valid trade-off it depends on on what you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to do and of course okay. i mean you can you can um If you, at one point you figure out that you should rather have separated databases, you can do that probably without a lot of um, effort. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so if we have uh, multiple services and we now want to do testing, how does that work? That's again a good point and it is often forgotten. Um, so, as I said, I think microservices have independent deployment as the main characteristic of them. And to actually achieve independent deployment, you have to have independent tests too. So, because mm -hmm. um, if I have my microservice and I run through my deployment pipeline and then there is some integration test and there is a different microservice that is just being integration tested, I can probably not pass that stage because uh, first we need to check whether the microservice that is currently being integration tested is correct before I can enter that stage because otherwise it's not clear whether my microservice or the other microservice is actually the one that that uh, that made the integration test fail. Mm -hmm. So there is a bottleneck. And if you have, in particular, if you have a migration scenario where you, where you uh, have your deployment monolith and you want to split it apart into microservices, it's very tempting to just take the tests that you have for your deployment monolith and declare them integration tests for the microservices. And then you do have that bottleneck and it's going to be a huge bottleneck. So for that reason, you need to separate those tests too. Now, the problem is, how could that possibly work? Because, of course, there might be things uh, that must be tested in integration tests. So some functionalities that can only really be tested if you have all of your microservices working together. First of all, let me just say that if you have bound a context, that should not be that should not be common. It should be the exception. So mm -hmm. uh, that is one way of, of sort of dealing with that problem, or or at least realizing that it might not be that bad. The other thing is, if you think about it. What's the purpose of an integration test? The purpose of an integration test is to make sure that systems work together, that the integration works. It's not called acceptance tests. It is not mm -hmm. something where you test whether the software is actually something that the customer would accept. So can we do acceptance tests without integrating all the modules? Well, it turns out you can. So if you have... If I have my system, let's say there, there is an order system, and it talks to an invoicing system, I can check my system with a stub for the invoicing system. And that's something that is rather common. You know, So uh, if I have uh, the invoicing system, if it, it, it is something that, that people now also do. So instead of running the, the real invoicing system, I just have a stub that behaves in the way that I intend it to behave. And, um, well, there's still a problem because what about the invoicing system? That one might actually have a problem. It might not behave in the way that I expect it to behave. So that that is where consumer-driven contract tests come in. That's something that is also like at least 10 years old. The, the idea is like 10 years old. And the idea is basically to write a test. So I write a test for invoicing and I pass it over to invoicing and I say, this is the way that I uh, intend to use your, your uh, system. 
So, you know, I do this call, I expect that result, I do this call, I expect that result, and so on and so on. And the nice thing is that now the, the, the invoicing system can be tested for correctness or in an acceptance test without my system, but instead we would use the consumer-driven contract test. And that means that now we have two systems that actually talk to one another, but whether they work together correctly can be tested in separated deployment pipelines. So I can test whether my system uh, does the right thing by using a stop, and they can use the consumer-driven contract test that I will provide them to make sure that their system works correctly. Now, you might argue, well, that's all nice, but, you know, how can I make sure that the consumer-driven contract test and the stop are actually like the real thing? And of course, that's a challenge, but what you also have to think about is that the risk of an individual deployment is lower because you do much more frequent deployments because of continuous delivery. And also, I just change one microservice in each deployment, so the risk is lower. And that means that you can have alternative approaches and alternative things that you can do, like uh, you can roll back to the last uh, deployment if there is a problem in production. So I would argue that um, it's not just about doing tests, it's also about uh, the lower risk of deployments that continuous delivery and microservices give you. And I think that's in particular important if uh, you're looking at performance testing, because I would argue that it's very hard to get performance testing right and to actually get a production-like system or the production data, I mean, and, and you know, get simulate the user behavior. In particular, if there are new features, who knows how that feature how those features will be used? And in particular, in that case, I would rather um, rely on monitoring the ability to do some elastic scaling, the ability to deploy fixes quickly in production and so on to solve uh, performance problems. So I think with microservices, we also have to think more about monitoring, uh, getting deployments quickly out um, as, as something that would also lower the risk of problems in production and um, making it easier to actually solve problems that you might have in production. But in uh, in a way, the CDC would enable us to make the contracts between services more explicit, right? We so we can uh, we don't only have those firewalls between the systems, but we also know where uh, the doors between those uh, areas are, right? Right. Um, so I would I I would fully agree, and I think uh, if you do any kind of um, interface between teams or developers. You might want to do it uh, using some kind of uh, consumer-driven contract tests because uh, there are just so many advantages to be gained out of that. Uh, so it's a clear definition about uh, interface uh, of the the interface. It clearly spells out how the interface will be used, and it also means that the interface is more changeable because um, if uh, the the invoicing system wants to change their interface, they can just do it. And uh, without talking to anyone, and can they can just see whether the uh, consumer-driven contract test will fail. And if it does, they actually they they obviously did something that they shouldn't have done. And you know, then they can uh, just go back and uh, say, okay, well, we are not going to do that, or we need to do, really talk to that team. While if you don't have that, 
it's much harder to change the interface because you might not even be aware of who uses that interface and how. Um, mm. And you know, then, then it's more like, okay, are we going to do that change? What are we going to break? I don't know. So let's rather not do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, if we would want to sum up the discussion, what would be your main takeaways for implementing microservices? Yeah, so currently I have somewhat mixed feelings because um, I think microservices are very fashionable and um, there are some, let's say, strange things that I see out in the world, like uh, people even people who, who want to implement or use microservices but are not sure why they, they are doing that. So I think if you ask me, it comes down to the question, what are your goals? And um, then you can find an architecture. And I think microservices bring a lot to the table. So as I said, for large systems, they make development much easier. They might even help you to solve organizational issues and you know communication issues that you might have. So that's great. Uh, it is an excellent tool if you uh, want to do continuous delivery. I would not introduce um, continuous delivery without thinking about the architecture, whether you want to do microservices or not. Um, and also, I think um, the the focus that we're seeing nowadays after like, what is it, like almost 15 years um, concerning domain of design, I really like that because it's such a powerful approach. So there is a renaissance about a lot of things like domain-driven design, resilience, and um, these kinds of things. And I think it's it's great that they are getting into the, the spotlight again. Um, having said that, I the way that I see microservices now, it's to me, it's another tool and um, it has a lot of advantages. And I would use it as... Uh, sort of an inspiration about what you can do in your uh, current environment and in your current context to solve the problems at hand. So mm -hmm. that's the way that I look at it and the way that I would handle it. And uh, what that means is um, I think, for example, domain-driven design makes a lot of sense, but maybe in your system it's still fine to do a deployment monolith that has uh, a structure that is uh, that is uh, inspired or that implements domain design and i think th that's a very valid decision and i would pretty i would prefer that over a decision where uh, you're doing microservices uh, but you can't really spell out why you are doing that and you can't really mention the reasons so if there is a conscious decision about doing a deployment monolith but using some approaches like domain driven design to structure it i think that's that's excellent Uh, if it solves your problem, if microservices solve your problem, and I would argue probably they will, uh, then you should use that and uh, use that approach. And um, I think, yeah, it, it helps a lot uh, with a lot of problems that we are seeing nowadays. Of course, we want to provide, we, we want to get out our software more quickly. Of course, we have uh, larger teams. Of course, the things are becoming more complex, and that is where microservices really shine. Okay, so thank you for talking to me. Um, this was another episode of the Case Podcast. Uh, yeah, have a nice day. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.